Frank Murphy might be Michigan's best-known Irish-American. He was the 55th mayor of Detroit and the state's 35th governor. Later, he served as the U.S. Attorney General and became a Supreme Court Justice. Murphy's name is on the Third Circuit Court building downtown. His family's story is included in a new book called Irish Immigrants in Michigan. Historians Pat Cummins and Elizabeth Rice collected stories of families who came from Ireland, though most were not as famous as Frank Murphy. Cummins says their research started in a cemetery in Owasso. And I was absolutely amazed at the headstones of the Irish immigrants in, in, who came to Owasso. And uh, from there, we traveled from cemetery to cemetery and we discovered all over the, the state more Irish immigrants. And there was so little written about them that we decided that we would put something on paper and then we began to examine and to uh, go to the libraries, the archivists, the museums. We met genealogists, historians, and I have to say they were wonderful people that we met. They helped us along the journey. Many of the stories are similar. Uh, Several immigrants bought land, established farms and other businesses. Uh, Some had to split up their families. Not everybody could uh, emigrate from Ireland to America. Do you know what happened to those establishments? I mean, do any of those farms, for example, still operate today? Were they passed down to descendants or or sold? We found uh, a couple of farms that, boy, they stayed in the families until nearly present day, but in it wasn't really our, our sort of goal to find out who owned the land today. Um, so if we came upon that information, we were glad to get it. But um, I couldn't, we couldn't really speak to in general, did most of these farms remain? I would agree with that. It's very difficult to find out. The Irish are wanted land, 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 because back home, they didn't own land. They were either laborers or tenant farmers at will. And when they went to America, when they came to Michigan, they wanted land and they did buy land, which of course was only maybe $1.25 an acre. And so uh, they bought up as much as they could when they could afford it, when they could afford it. But as Elizabeth said, time passed. And many of them lost their farms or gave up their farms or whatever. Besides uh, the land that was available, and there was a lot of it back then, what made Michigan so attractive to many Irish immigrants? I think in, in the first place, people who actually survived the crossing and made it here, of course, they were landing on the eastern seaboard. So New York City, Boston, Philadelphia, Quebec, and those places were crowded already. So it was incredibly difficult to find shelter, find work, be able to kind of survive the day. So for those that got wind of what if we go west, many of them went to upstate New York first, found work there, then worked their way over when the Erie Canal came in and people started learning about the resources in Michigan, the lumbering, the mining, and then this idea that once the lumbering was done, the agriculture, 
it just spurred people on because they could get there. We have stories of people who came by foot and people who came on horse and buggy, but once the, the rail started, that changed everything. Antrim, Wexford, Clare, and Roscommon counties share their names with counties in Ireland, but uh, we understand from reading the book, we also have our own Emerald Isle in northern Lake Michigan. Uh, how did Beaver Island get that unofficial title? We were had a wonderful trip to Beaver Island three years ago, and we learned a lot about Beaver Island. How it got its name was, well, of course, there's a big, long history to Beaver Island. It initially, it, you know, the Native Americans lived there fishing, uh, trapping, and then the French came, and then the Irish came from Mackinac Island. Most of them, most of these people who came from Mackinac Island, they came from another island off the west coast of, of Ireland called Aranmore. And when they got, arrived in, in Mackinac Island, they went down to Beaver Island and became fishermen and fur traders, etc. But then a strange thing happened. There was a gentleman by the name of James Strang. You may have heard of him. He was the leader of the uh, Mormon uh, group that broke away from uh, Brigham Young. And he felt that Beaver Island was an ideal place for his followers. So he arrived in Beaver Island and he became uh, the king of uh, Beaver Island. He was known as the king of Beaver Island and he he was autocratic. So anyone who did not convert to, to uh, Mormonism, he ejected them, including the Irish. Now, the Irish were not very happy about that, and uh, they went back to Mackinac Island. But then King James Strine, he got too big for his boots, they would say. <laughs> he became very autocratic, and he became a polygamist. He married five wives, and one of the things that he laid down in his rule book was that the women were to wear certain type of bloomers, underwear, of course, the women objected to that, and so did, it, so did the husbands. People got fed up, and then yeah. he was assassinated. So once he was gone, word came round, and the Irish flooded back. And when they came back, they began to write letters home and describe this new place and compared it to Ireland, their own Emerald Isle. And that's really the, how the name began to stick and the fact that so many Irish were living there and speaking their native language that it sort of became this enclave called the Galtech, where Irish was the first language for everything. And it just sort of grew, you know, and again, until sort of the fishing industry eventually ended, the lumbering industry ended. The children grew up and started to move away. It's still a very, very Irish island in terms of, you know, maintaining Irish history and such. So that's kind of the history of how, how we have an Emerald Isle here. And it is a beautiful place. It is very much so. With many place names that you could find in Ireland, too. So that's kind of a, a nice connection. It is completely unspoiled island and a beautiful place to go to. 
and the names still are there. The Irish names are still there. The Gallagher's, the McDonough's, the O'Hara's, the uh, Fitzgerald's. And we visited the cemetery there, of course, and had looked at them again because we've got some sort of a, a thing about cemeteries. So we had to visit the cemetery there as well. And But it, they have their festival, the Irish festival there every year, which is a wonderful... It, it's still got that Irish feeling about it. What do you both hope readers will take away from reading the book? What What do you want them to uh, to know when they're done reading? One of the things that we tried to do by doing a separate story for each county was to make it, in a way, an easy read. You could read one story, you could put it down. You could come back the next day, you could pick it up again because each story is complete to itself. But in a bigger picture, each story sort of adds something to Michigan's early statehood history. So you can kind of take an overview of how Michigan was developing in the 1900s and sort of laying the background for what comes after the 1900s. So in that regard, we thought, well, okay, then this would be something that children in school could read during, you know, the time when they do kind of Michigan history. You could have middle school children read this and maybe go a little bit further. One of the things we found when we were researching each life is that you could always go a little bit further. We wanted in particular to give a voice to the forgotten Irish immigrants. We didn't want to write about, let's say, Henry Ford, so much written about Henry Ford in books that we wanted to, to write about the ordinary, mostly about ordinary people. Even our first story in the book about the, the mother who looked for her son. Her, she, her husband had died and uh, she gave one of her baby son to a family to mind. That family moved away and the mother tried to find her son and she spent a lifetime looking for the sun, little stories like that, ordinary stories to give these people a voice, the forgotten people, the people in the cemeteries with the headstones broken, not looked after or whatever. And that was one of our main purposes. And I, we, we would hope that our readers would find comfort with that and it would inspire them as well to write up their own stories. There are thousands of stories still to be written about immigrants, not only Irish, Germans, Italians, Scandinavians, whoever. There are thousands of, and these, all history is local. That's my, some say politics is local, but I say history is local. And it's important that the, the local people can read about their local uh, ancestors. So that was one of our reasons for, and hoping, hopefully, hoping that people would be inspired by the book.